Hey, it's your death sentence for this week. Uh, in the news, um, there's going to be a genocide. So, yeah, uh, if there's not a lot people can at our end can do about the whole Rajava thing, but if there is a you know a protest near you, then please do go to it. Um, you know, I don't want to say that it, things are probably set in stone right now because you know that sounds dispiriting, but they very likely are, and um, yeah, stuff's just generally bad. Can I um, can I ask people on air to fly across the country and join a uh, Kurdish resistance group? Yeah, that, I think I think that that uh, that ship has sailed at this point. Um, you just you just be going out there to get shelled by Turks. So, but uh, I I do you know I I was very close to actually joined in, joining the YPG in about 2012. It's a little factoid about my history. They'll probably get me on a no-fly list. What stopped you? Sorry? What stopped you? Uh, I'm, I met my wife. And I yeah, that'd to... do it. That's, yeah. uh, that's the Very classic nice, one. Yeah, you're I like, just... I want to die in another country. And yeah. your spouse-to-be is like, I don't. And you're like, hmm. Hmm, yeah, Okay. I... <laughs> I kind of I, I met the YPG recruiter on Facebook about two weeks before I met my current wife and mother of my child. So, you know that that'll that'll keep you out of you know join, joining the YPG. But um, yeah, so You're like I'm sorry. In the last uh, in the last two weeks, I got wifed up, man. And he's like, ah, <laughs> shit. Fair. <laughs> yeah. Damn, we're one guy away from defeating ISIS. <laughs> We need one like skinny, out of shape uh, white person to come like win for us with their white people powers. Well, then, then they got a uh, what was it? Uh, Grandpa Piss Pig? I forget. <laughs> oh, Piss Pig! Forget, uh, um, Brace Piss Pig Granddad. granddad. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Now I'm yeah, not he... going to call him his real name. That's that's no. not his name. We all know his name. <laughs> he, he's he's doing like a podcast. He's he's out in the, he's out now. He's um. Yeah, I know. But uh, yeah, his and his podcast, uh, True and On, is very, very good. I mean, amazing. That, that's but, um, that's not surprising. He actually was um, an incredibly well-spoken uh, political mind, even when he was there. Yeah, and funny as hell. But um, oh, yeah. yeah, so enough about uh, geopolitics. Um, let's talk about nuclear war. Uh, so that's closer now. Again, yeah, is it? Oh, I did, did that. Did that happen while I was away? Oh, what, is, no. is there more oh, oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> no, I was. Uh, I mean, just uh, in a general the incre- sense, the, the increased uh, instability of the. Okay. Well, I forgot. Right. I forgot that this was. I thought we were still talking news. So, right. Okay. And so, then I then I realized that no, this is this is the book intro, and I've I fucked it up. Damn right. Okay. <laughs> I'm putting that in there so people know. That's um, good, yeah. That I, I'm the weak one. <laughs> I mean, we both have our weaknesses. Um, so, it's a book called The Last uh, by Hannah Jameson, who's nice enough to join us. Uh, it um, came out... There she is. Sorry, uh, It came I'm... out, like, what in, what in, like, March, was it? April. Or thereabouts? Um, I actually can't remember the US release date. I think it was April. April. It was April here. Okay, cool. And I've had it on my shelf kind of since then, uh, since the UK release date, obviously. Um, and I finally got around to reading it when I had a little lull and turned out to be 
super good. So, uh, yeah. So then I DM'd you, and the rest is kind of um, content history. Um, yeah, so I guess let's start with just like um, elevator pitch for this book, because it, it's quite easy to elevate a pitch, and that's not a, a bad thing. It's a very good thing. But um, yeah, Hannah, can you just like tell us about the book a little bit? Okay, sure. Um, I actually find it quite hard to elevate a pitch because everything um, the publisher says about the book, I don't necessarily um, agree with or, or think the book is entirely um, those things. Um, but it's basically a dystopian murder mystery. Um, mm -hmm. It's set in the months immediately following a the outbreak of nuclear war. And it's told from the point of view of a stranded American historian in a hotel in Switzerland. Um, where he's holed up with about 20 other survivors. And the premise of the novel um, comes from a couple of months in when they go to investigate why the drinking water tastes a bit off and they find the body of a young girl in the rooftop water tank. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's a good elevator pitch for it. I mean, that, that works. I mean, obviously, there's a hell of a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, and you can do all the... Um, I'm sure your publishers like the comparisons, you know, the road meets the shine in. Um, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot more going on here. And it's a very uh, realistic um, portrayal of probably the aftermath of a nuclear war in Switzerland. Um, did you, were you like, study, did you do a lot of um, reading up on what nuclear war was likely to pan out as? Um, I did um, what research I could, but um, because it hasn't really happened um, in the way that, that I've described or in a sort of uh, global uh, civilization ending sort of way, um, a lot of the answers I got from, you know, from, from scientists was pretty much, uh, we think it might be like this, but we don't know. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, I guess. Useful for a, for a novelist when I was asking about things like internet and power, and I was going, mm. well, would they have access to Wi-Fi? And they were like, well, maybe in some areas, we, we don't know. Um, would, would we still have access to social media? Uh, maybe in some areas, but we don't know. Um, so yeah, that was one of the... For me. That was one of the really cool things. I mean, it was obviously expedient for the plot because, you know, he's, the guy's in Switzerland, he's an American, his family are in America. So he needs to be able to contact them somehow. But yeah, it when I first... When it first came up, like the internet is still working, I was like, "Wait, internet? Like everyone's gone the road? The internet's still working?" But then I realized, "Wait, the internet is supposed to survive a nuclear war. That was literally why they invented it." You know? So yeah, it it makes a lot of sense that there's still the internet, which yeah, is yeah, in some in some in some places, I imagine, and I guess it depends on what places are destroyed and. I don't know. It's one of those things that we can't, we couldn't really predict until it happened. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Without I the uh, the the short answer in a certain end is that it um, there's certain funnel points for the internet, and hmm. until we have a, we don't have a full east west connection on the other side of the world right now. It's mostly the Atlantic connection, but um, yeah. So long as those funnel points are fine, then it would, and anyone not uh on the same like wing of the internet would still be able to talk to each other so like all of asia would be able to talk to each other still hmm. 
Yeah, I know there's a like a major funnel in, in New York, which would probably yeah. be one of the first places hit, so that would probably go down. <laughs> but um yeah, I think there's one from like South America to Africa and uh I forget, but it's um yeah, it it's unlikely unless like every inch of the world got nuked that um the whole internet would go down. I think, yeah, you're right, there would be pockets, there would be places that it would work. Which kind of begs the question of like would people still be shitposting as much as we do now? Uh, oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, the nukes are flying. Pe like, there was that uh -huh. renaissance of insane shitposting in, like, the early 2010s, but now everyone seems to have gotten older, and they're like, well, I need to be professional now, even though they, they don't really. Bombs start coming, everyone's getting weird again. Internet's going to go crazy. <laughs> the posts yeah, are going to be like incredible. If people aren't going to be like live streaming that shit, you like you've you've have you haven't really learned a lot from how the internet has been the last few years. Mm. <laughs> It'd be like the minute someone sees one nukes, they're like, "Yo, what up, internet? I just burned all my shirts. It's shirtless time. Never wearing a shirt again." <laughs> yeah, they'd, they'd see like a mushroom cloud over New York and be like, "Thanks, I hate this." <laughs> I live in one half of a house. The other half got blowed up, but the the, the the one half is fine. I just put tarps up to keep the wind out. <laughs> Being against cannibals is ableist. <laughs> cannibals are valid. Mutants are valid. <laughs> but, um, oh, yeah, the, the, the shit poster would be very good. The woke poster would be unbearable at that point i mean there'd be so much i told you so as well oh yeah yeah you, you kind of you get into that in the book where um i don't i because it's a mystery i don't want to do a lot of spoilers so i'll, I'll keep this relatively spoiler free but you know, shout at me if there are spoilers so one of the characters uh tommy is, is it pronounced tommy or tommy should be I tommy right? tommy um but yeah. no people pronounce it tommy so i mean yeah. i don't know strongly about it okay we'll, we'll say tommy She's an American conservative, and a lot of people turn on her for like causing being one of the people who kind of caused the nuclear war. And I, I know this was probably mostly written like pre-Trump, but um, there's a he's a, a yeah he's like the twenty-first character in this kind of he looms kind of large when you read it in like twenty nineteen. I mean, it was actually written post-Trump. I started writing oh, it wow. in. Um... January 2017. You you go fast. Wow. This is like yeah, it was a pretty short draft, yeah. Damn. Yeah, you went quick. And they released it quick too. Wow. Yeah, so it felt like I mean it took about a year and a half to to come out after I sold it. So um to me it felt like it just a ridiculously long process. Yeah. I mean, yeah, some novelists like it they're still calling around publishers like three or four years after they turn in their manuscript. So yeah, I think a year and a half is fairly quick. Not the quickest, but you know. But um, yeah. So this is your first like major published novel, right? No, it's my fourth. Oh, okay. I'm research is um, you know, not one of my strong points. <laughs> That's where you're the weak one. Oh it's yeah, doing doing research one. and being professional. It's my fourth. But, um, I had the exact day that it came out in the U.S. Gareth. The exact day. It was April 9th. Gareth. <laughs> okay, that, that's my birthday month. I don't do anything in April, okay? I'm not going to remember shit. But, um, okay, uh, I mean, tell us about your other stuff then, because obviously I need to know. 
being ignorant? <laughs> um, well, my first three books are kind of more straightforward psychological crime fiction. Um, mm -hmm. They, you know, they were still published. You could you could still get them in all the normal bookshops. Um, it didn't wasn't published in the US, I don't think. Though um, the second one was published in Japan. Um, uh, was published in Germany, Netherlands. Um, but it, it's fair to say that the last is is big, bigger than those guys. I mean, yeah, this was it's like first, it's my first sort of big bestseller, and it was the first I sold to one of the, you know the bigger publishers. So it was my first yeah. Penguin. Yeah, I mean, they went crazy for this book. In I, I'm. I work near the biggest bookshop in the north of England, and they went nuts for the book in there. It was it was everywhere. It was it was bigger than like, uh, like the testaments and stuff. So uh, yeah, obviously people are, are digging it, and um, yeah. So <clears throat> let's let's talk shop then. How what what changed? Why? How did this one get bigger than the the other three? Um, probably Penguin's budget. Mm -hmm. That'll do um, it. That, that would help. Um, but I don't know. I think, I mean, it is obviously better um, because it's my latest, my latest one. I mean, my first three novels I wrote when I was um, 17, my first one. Um, that was mm -hmm. the first draft was from when I was 17. The second one, I was 23 when I wrote it, maybe, oh no, 22. And the third one, I was 24. 425 so yeah my, my latest novel is always going to be my best one because I'm still kind of learning how to do this but I have been just been fortunate enough to learn how to do it on the job hmm. um yeah it's, keep more I, oh, sorry. it's more what I wanted to okay. write well my first three books were in a three book contract and by the time I, I I was out of that I was just dying to to write something else in a different genre with different characters and I've always been. So they, they were like a trilogy. Yeah, they were a trilogy. The first three. Oh. Yeah, um, man, writing like writing stuff at seven, like at seventeen, and having it being good enough to be published is uh, like I look back at stuff I wrote like two years ago, and I think it's unbearable garbage. <laughs> but uh, so you must be like very much ahead of the game there. And um, how I started younger. How did you like negotiate the whole like publishing world at, at that age? Not very well. Um, I mean, I was sending stuff off to get published when I was when I was fifteen. That was when I first started. Um, I wrote the first draft when I was seventeen of the book that went on to become Something You Are, and um, I, I I rewrote it and I rewrote it uh, for a few years, and then I was fortunate enough to. Um, just at a party, it, it was at a. It, oh, it's a really stupid story. I was at a gig. Uh, you know the band, The Darkness. I I remember them. Yeah. Um, they're still around. They put out a new album recently. Gareth, research. <laughs> it's not research. It's, you just know that because you probably it, liked them. It's called Easter is cancelled. It has a very funny cover. <laughs> of course, it does. They're a novelty band. Anyway, sorry. Go on. <laughs> Anyway, they were part of the reason um, I got published because I went to um, one of their gigs at Shepherd's Bush Empire and I ended up at the after show party because my my then boyfriend knew them or was friends with them or something. And um, 
I ended up sitting next to uh, a, a woman who worked at a literary agency in London who then became my literary agency um, because we had a said I'd written a book and she said oh you know we're not taking submissions at the moment because we haven't got the manpower to read anything um, but if you send it to me I'll at least make sure an agent reads it so I sent it to her and then I then I got an agent and that was kind of that um yeah wow. that's uh, a far better story than the most yeah I'm processing that right now that's that's like out of a movie yeah, <laughs> that's very much yeah, like my out whole of a movie it's been pretty much like that <laughs> Um, the next few years um, certainly weren't like a movie um, because my first contract, it, it paid me for three books that I had to produce, you know, a, a book a year, um, but didn't pay me a book I could actually Yeesh. live on. So um, I was oh, waitressing, yeah, uh, cocktail bartending. Um, I had a, <laughs> I had like a year-long nervous breakdown at 23. Um, that classic. That's a classic 23 yeah, thing 23 to do. Yeah, 23 is just a rubbish mm. age for everybody, I think. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, you put... And then, yeah, yeah I just kind um, of skidded wow. out of that and thought, well, what could I what could I do? Like, the industry has kind of chewed me up and spat me out, and I was just really bitter and disillusioned. And, and so I thought, well, I'll just go and write what I want. So I went... Um, I moved to a city where I didn't know anybody with the last of my money, um, moved into someone's spare room where I was paying like 200 pound a month rent. And I wrote the last in five months and I didn't know anyone was gonna like buy it. I just thought, well, I'm gonna do it. And if no one wants it, then I don't really have a plan B. <laughs> and then it sold to Penguin. <laughs> so um, it went okay in the end. That's probably the best story of a writer's career oh, we've had really? on the show so far yeah very easily i mean a it involved like the darkness at the start B, it <laughs> yes. involved, like involved like a, a meat cute with a literary agent in and and then you were it, it has an arc your story hasn't it was like you were you were on at your lowest point and then you committed and pulled yourself out and it's, then it won. is kind of amazing how much you, my life does make narrative sense Exactly. It's, it's probably got the like 19 points of the Save the Cats plan to write a perfect <laughs> screenplay. And um, even even like that after show party that I ended up at, like with the darkness, the only reason I met the woman who worked at the uh, at my literary agency, PFD, um, the only reason I met her was because my boyfriend who I was with had um, drunk so much black sambuca before the gig that he was so drunk he couldn't stand up. Um, so it was only because I had to lead him to a dark corner to sit down because I thought he was going to vomit. Um, and the woman I ended up sat next to was, was her. PFD. I know that. I used to work at, um, RCW for a time and I think we came across PFD at some points. Everyone knows each other in London. Uh, yeah, it's stuff. A small, small industry. But, yeah. Small incestuous. Coke field and um, yeah, but uh, yeah, damn. Okay, that's like a much more awesome story than most people, which is just like uh, I did an MFA, went to a writer's retreat, and now people pay me tons of money to write books. <laughs> yeah, none of that's ever worked um, for me. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's and you've come out with a really good book, so you know, um, yeah, hats off to you. Um, yeah, I have, I have, I have no pithy commentary. That's just, that's just a ridiculously cool and good story. <laughs> yeah, just uh, yeah. Thumb, my, my, you can't see him, but both of my thumbs are up t towards <laughs> Thank you. you. There. 
Um, just yeah, just good on you. Um, I also quite like the um, the the kind of slight genre leap. It, it's it's not it's not a terribly huge one, but it still takes that like um, that philip k dickey and lesson the one that the one that's more important but people tend to overlook for like always oh, weird of just setting a standard mystery story in a situation where you would not expect to be hearing about a standard mystery story so like in a in a nuclear war tale you're assuming that it's going to pan out in a certain way and focus on certain things and then instead just the little insight of like Let's just make it a normal kind of murder mystery. But while this shit's going on and it's like, oh, it works perfectly. It works every time. It's such a good hook for a story. Like, yeah. Yeah, Murder mysteries, which in real life are super rare, are just brilliant, like fodder for stories. You can put them anywhere. Space stations, time travel, nuclear war, obviously. You just throw a murder in there. And it just works out great. I don't know why more people don't do it. It's kind of like... Well, there is that whole industry built around it, Gareth. I I know, I know. Okay, (laughs) why people in the uh, high-end literary fiction worlds don't do it. I know there is crime fiction. I'm sure I've seen seen crime fiction before. (laughs) It's like, I don't know how to break this to you. But actually, quite (laughs) a number of people do this. Yeah, there's uh, Agatha Christie. You may have uh, heard of her. But, um, okay, that that seems like a, a logical point to break for some music. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so hopefully I can get smarter by the second half. Let's <laughs> um, not say dumb stuff, right? So <laughs> let's let's play um, botanist first because he's a he's a massive weirdo. Oh yeah, he is just a just a crazy weirdo. I'm I'm upset based. that his his newest album doesn't continue the numbering. Uh, well, he's a weirdo. What do you That's expect? True. He's got maybe do maybe he had it. enough numbers. He got he got all the numbers he needed. Yeah. So what I'm referencing is that um he has an overarching um he has an overarching concept to all of his work uh in that he is I don't know the fancy word for it, but I know it's it's an anti anthropocene uh concept about uh plant life retaking the earth following some kind of uh, green catastrophe so either um unfortunately the inevitability of climate death is is leading in his favor um that uh non-plant life will die out and plant life will reclaim the earth um just built out of that standard kind of it, it's hard not to follow international news and follow national news and follow the um sort of the wickedness of the undying fascist spirit that just sort of haunts and ruins the earth uh, and feel some days like, man, if it was just like trees and grass and no people, that'd be killer. Um, mm. And then, uh, yeah, his, his big claim to fame for a while also was that instead of having guitar, he had heavily treated hammered dulcimer as the string instrument which gave it that like very bright steely sound as he was still doing these uh tremolo riffs but on a dulcimer Hmm. yeah and he was a one-man band for a long time he's got a a collective around him now so i think there's it helps when you write a bunch of really good records and people offer you a 
bunch of money to go do uh, gigs and you're like, I can't do a gig. I don't have people. And they're like, yeah. what if we give you slightly more money so you can hire people? I mean, it's like, well, fuck, I guess I'm a band now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, so, yeah, he's he's got a new one out. Um, first thing, uh, first song off it. Well, the first song we're going to play is going to be called Red Crown. It refers to the uh, crown of like birch trees, I think it is, or some sort of trees in the forest. It's, it's he refers to his genre as green metal, which I kind of love. Um, yeah, it it's weird. Some people don't like his vocals. I didn't on his first few records before he kind of turned them down a little bit. But um, yeah, it's nothing really sounds like it, which is good. So yeah, here's Botanist with Red Crown.
No, oh no, no, no! There, there is. We we okay. cut it in later. Yeah, we wouldn't like record this live. Okay. That'd be crazy. Um, because I need to cut out all the times I've been <laughs> stupid. No, no, increase their volume, just like, <laughs> or 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 make my response turn the gain of my response all the way up. So it's like it would be crazy if people just wrote more about murder mysteries, and then it's like, and you're like, shut up! <laughs> so it's just like. A high gain I'll, I'll, ghost yelling at you. I'll put a um, I'll put a chorus effect to your voice that sounds like tons of people are all yelling at me at once. <laughs> and I'm just in this like nightmare scenario where everything I say gets that's like emotionally destroyed by this gang of people in a stadium. Put a chorus and a tremolo effect. So it's yeah. just whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> A phaser, so it's like an alien shouting too. I can do all kinds of stuff with this. Uh, the effect stuff I got, I got very high end audio quality stuff here. We should make one episode where uh, no one can understand anything that's said. 
That would be sick. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of the ultimate uh, high point in podcasting is go from like <laughs> normal, like normie po- podcasting where you talk about serial killers or whatever to uh, left podcasting where, you, where you're like, you're talking about like hard to follow difficult theoretical concepts to uh, dirtbag left podcasting where you're talking about that, but also making dick jokes to just noise. Just pure forty-five minutes of unrelenting noises that make no sense. Why doesn't Mertzbau have a noise-based podcast where every week he releases another hour-length noise composition as a podcast? I think he hates podcasts now because <clears throat> of the uh, multiple Mertzbau podcast debacle of two thousand eighteen. Yeah, he got he got really mad about that. He did, and about the treatment of animals. Um, yeah, so we're still here with Hannah. She hasn't run off yet because we're idiots. I've just left the microphone um, briefly. I'm back. Okay, that's that's cool. No, I, I, I like the fact there's a, there's noise now. That's yep. kind of fits yep. in with what we were talking about. So yeah, it works. So um, it helps <laughs> to keep the authors around when we think their books are very very good. Uh, <laughs> people like to hear that. It's weird how. And I like I hear this from people across creative industries, but the number of people that don't hear enough from like regular people who enjoy their work that their work is enjoyed mm-hmm. to sort of break through that bubble of like, I'm not just throwing this shit out into a void and receiving a check. People actually value what I am doing. It's uh, it's insanely dispiriting to hear that it's like a bunch of musicians that you'd think like, oh, you're on the top of a lot of bills. And they're like, yeah, it shows we know if there's stuff going on. But like you go home and then you're like, ah, I guess I'm just some schmuck. Or like writers especially dealing a lot with um, the mental health stuff that can come with sitting in front of a computer all day just working out drafts. Yeah, it's kind of... Um... It's uh, It's been a new experience with this book because I am getting a lot of messages from people on Instagram and Twitter about how much they enjoy it and about their favorite characters and about just things that they really like. And I, I've never really had that before from people I don't know. Um, and there's still a part of me that is really surprised when anyone I don't personally know has read it. Um, <clears throat> so, so, So who are people's favorite characters? Have, have people got like faves? people really love Tommy? Yeah, pretty really? much everyone is me. I, it's, I, it's usually about Tommy, right? Okay, because I, I started off kind of hating her, and then by the end, I was like, okay, no respect. I, mm. I like you now. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I would stand Tommy if I had to, if I had to stand. Yeah, anyone. well, she's easier. I mean, John isn't really someone who you, who you stand, or at least I, I didn't write him in that way um yeah he's a yeah, every he's man well i wouldn't say he's an every man he's he starts off that way don't we realize there's a lot more yeah, to him than that. um and there's a lot that he kind of holds back that you know comes out over the course of mm. the novel but tommy you know i don't i don't agree with her politically i'm not aligned with her at all um but she's fiercely competent um and of everyone yeah. in that hotel i i like to think i would react like tommy Hmm. Yeah, she's kind of, um, she's kind of, the person I think of her most as is, is no nothing like her at all, except for the politics. And that's, um, did you ever watch Parks? 
some recreation? Um, no, it, I, it, people keep um, recommending it to me, but I just can't. It's, it's not. It's honestly not great. But um, there's a character called Ron Swanson in it. I know who him. Is, um, he's yeah. He's like a, a libertarian. He uh, has gold and lots of guns and does woodworking and stuff. And he's he's like Tommy. He's like conservative but hyper competent, brave, decisive. He's kind of like what conservatives imagine themselves as. Yeah, that makes sense. And what, what people like Ben Shapiro, yeah. He, what people like Ben Shapiro and uh, Jack Posobiec, how they portray themselves, or, but they end up like reveal, showing their whole ass because they just, they just can't pull that off because they're just not that person. But Tommy kind of is that person. She is the, she's what, um, conservatives imagine themselves to be and um so one question i've never heard asked of a female author before is what's it like to write a male for lead character because i've i've asked that myself to like male authors who have written female uh, lead characters but what's it like from the other side how do you like get inside inside the head of a guy um, well, you you cut out for a moment there, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start answering oh, because I can't sorry. I didn't hear the end of the question. Okay. <laughs> um, but I don't find it that hard. Um, writing men isn't that hard because mm -hmm. yeah, the thing about simple. the inside of men's heads is that it's not this great mystery. Um, we're we're literally as a society <laughs> inundated with what men think and how men think <laughs> all the time from all angles from all media and everything we mm -hmm. hear about is yeah. what men are thinking. Um, so I, I think, um, writing from the point of view of, of a man isn't difficult, um, because I just write him like I would any other human being. Um, I do think yep. that there are issues with people maybe not being honest about the people they're writing about. Um, I sometimes think there are a lot of men who don't write about men that honestly. Um, and they write a lot about mm, men who they yeah. wish they were rather than who men are. Um, and that's where I think, you know, women writing men and, and you know, black people writing white characters and, um, you know, any person of color writing a white character. Um, it's an interesting perspective because it's, it's often, I think, more honest um, because these people have to know their oppressors better than their oppressors know themselves. Mm, yeah. Um, and writing yeah, I think there was, oh, I forget who, who said that. There's basically quote, um, I think it was Langston Hughes who said basically that exact same thing. That's you know that, that oh I think it was James Baldwin actually who's, who said that exact same thing that um, yeah black people know white people way better than white people know white people. Yeah, because they see them you know, for who they really really are. Yeah, and I suppose it's it's the same thing. It's which it kind of makes it difficult for yeah white male writers to because you know. Uh, we have a very limited perspective, and even if we're you know, earnestly trying to be better people, it's still yeah you know, we're still doing it with kind of blinkers on. Uh, so yeah, it's and that's um, you know, for what, what it's I worth. wanted to do when I wrote John, uh, because John's arc isn't mm. it's not just a who done it like John's you know yeah. journey throughout the novel is is going from a sort of nice. Polite, 
white US liberal um, who thinks and you know truly believes he's a good person um, to suddenly having to act like he's a good person. Um, and you have always been really mm, separate yeah. for him. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you bring up his politics as well because he, he makes quite a lot of noise about his politics. Mm -hmm. Um, he mentions, uh, as all good liberals do, that they were they went on marches and so forth, and which you know, you know, being more leftist people doesn't do shit, uh, but makes people makes liberals feel good about themselves. Um, yeah, and you're right. He his arc is he is forced to actually be moral, and that's um, yeah, and probably. A, a big part of the tension and the enjoyment of the book is from someone being in that situation where they are forced to actually make big, important choices. I remember, um, it's funny, you've got the blurb on the front is by Emily St. John Mandel, who wrote Station Eleven, really good book. Um, I remember seeing her at a talk uh, years ago when Station Eleven came out, and she was talking about like why people like these post-apocalyptic stories like yours and hers so much and the big thing was that people that people finally get to make choices that really matter it's not just about like you know buying a fair trade coffee instead of a regular coffee it's about like who lives and who dies um and was that kind of something you're conscious of when you were when you're writing it like how people perceive this post-apocalyptic kind of genre yeah i mean i guess that's why um i mean that's why i've i've always really enjoyed dystopian literature um but i think also jg ballard did that really well um because all of his books mm -hmm. are in some way about the destroying of structures um but it mm. wasn't just in a sort of degenerative way um i'm not just concerned with and you know he was he wasn't just concerned with the worst of what human beings can do to each other there was often a utopian aspect um, to the disaster because it would um, usually result in a kind of intellectual sort of a sort of internal liberation and renewal. Could only go yeah. back through your kind That's, of huge I, external disaster. I, I quite liked how um, this kind of post nihilist structuralism shows up also in the way that you structured the novel of it being less chapter oriented and more. Um, I say half journal, um, like journalistic in the sense of uh, not not like how a journalist would write, but in journal like like a journal. The I'm I'm bad at all the words that I spent so much money to learn, um, but uh, I like th that's why it, at some point my attachment to John sort of superseded all the others, but partly because he was the valence through which uh, like. My favorite chapters were more often the short ones where it's just this like flicker of a memory or like half of an image um, of reflecting on things, of it being to the point where the the nuclear disaster itself seemed less physically necessary for the guts of the story as much as the symbolic act of this profound destructive moment like it could have been structurally replaced with anything from profound grief to um uh to like life after addiction or like any of those major like so everything is fucked mm -hmm. now 
but but I'm still alive. Like now, like it's it's day five after the event, whatever the event is, and I have to keep I have to keep going. Like I'm not I'm not dead yet, so I have to. Um, and I find that structure like a really ripe one for stories as well. That often gets um, we get pushed a lot to build narrative arcs in the opposite direction, where we build up to that sort of apocalyptic um, event that we. Uh, apocalypse both as a negative thing and also as revelation and have that be the end of the story. And it's like, oh, that's that's where it caps off. But I really quite liked how um, this in specific, but also that um, a whole realm of apocalyptic literature, um, Ballard being a really good one, sets it not only as the beginning event for the story and the story is more like um, a post-traumatic mm -hmm. one where the major climactic event of the tale has objectively happened before the tale begins because it's about um, coping with things. It's about how do we assemble ourselves. And I really also quite dug the, the usage of the murder mystery is the linchpin of like, okay, well, we just had a nuclear war, but I guess regular murders are still happening. Let's, uh, let's put our heads together, gang. Um, it was a nice it was a nice set of internal and external pressures, I thought, for for John to then also have those like whiffs of memory wafting through every now and again to make it um sort of it 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 deepened him in a way that we have stereotypes that crime fiction isn't necessarily interested in. Which which isn't always true, obviously. There's there's actually plenty of crime fiction that does care about the depth of character and um building these real human figures, but yeah, I just, I just wanted to comment briefly that it's such a lovely structure to the novel, quite, quite lovely structure. Um, one, one of the, uh, one of the um, biggest influences on the novel. I don't know whether either of you have watched it. Um, the, the leftovers. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. I wouldn't have guessed, but I, I didn't, I didn't think of that. But now that actually does. When make you a said that, sense. you know, the the sort of apocalyptic event happening before the events of, you know, the main story. Um, that's kind of what interests me most as as a creator, because I, I think there's a time and a place for sort of kaboom narratives, um, but they're just not personally what I'm interested in writing. Um, but the reason I loved The Leftovers so much and the reason I think, you know, personally, I think it's a masterpiece um, and probably one of the best sort of TV shows ever made. Um, and the reason I loved it so much is because it's set years after an event and the whole kind of, the, the blood and guts of the story is just everyone trying to kind of go on, but not very well. Um, and it's kind of about how everything just starts to collapse, but it begins with individuals first. And um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was really fascinated by it and I really wanted to bring that kind of emotional depth and, and heaviness to, to what I was doing with the last. So yeah, it was a huge, it was a huge influence on it. I also yeah. quite I also quite like that kind of structure on a um on a on a political end as well because it reorients how we consider narratives in a sort of um the the typical politics of the standard like build up to the big conclusion big conclusion ending ah boom uh narrative is one that's heavily teleological one that both um a deeply liberal and a deeply conservative society quite mm -hmm. like a bit because it's like, oh, and then we get 
to the city on the hill or and then everything is ruined instead of this which uh, is end of history for example yeah neoliberalism was one it's all over okay Mm -hmm. everyone everyone just be happy forever now meanwhile this is substantially more uh dialectic or dialectical where it's life just keeps spilling out time just keeps moving forward and even though this major event happened it's it's back there now we're we're here and we have to keep um and so even just those those little moments of of presentness and the the little intimate moments in the story um like i tended to fixate less specifically on the uh the the murder mystery component itself as much as that being a vehicle for people to push themselves i i, I really sort of was engaging with it most as this little uh literary portraiture that was exactly, that was exactly what i wanted to write um I, hell yes <laughs> it's, uh, it's really good that people are relating to it like that because i'm more interested in character study than um you know i i prefer to use events to kind of get characters to kind of bring, you know, come out of themselves and observe how people behave rather than sort of move people around a board, um, even if the board itself is really interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that came across. I mean, it is very much about, primarily about John, secondarily somewhat about Tommy, then everyone in the, everyone in the building gets their own Usually they'll have like a chapter that kind of builds them a bit, but then they also get a hell of a lot of other building themselves. Everyone has an arc. Um, yeah, it it really does work. Some of the characters are, are much, are very interesting in and of themselves, and could probably have their own little side adventures if uh, you're inclined to write them. We all have this really dumb fucking. Con- Concept that we promote sometimes in literature that like that I, I'll even hear it from publishers, which is insane when you think the, the number of like truly great books that defy this. But this weird notion of like, oh, by the end of a book, a character has to change. And it's like they they don't because people don't very often. That's not like what necessarily makes an emotionally or intellectually compelling story that uh and what I quite liked about this is I'm highly pessimistic that uh, if this were to carry forward, that say John would remain uh, a decent person. This feels like he he pushed himself and he reached probably the limits of himself. And but what was like, it wasn't compelling because he might have changed. It was compelling because of the forced insight. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I love that it focused on, that it's it's. Like, we sometimes think that a properly compelling narrative has to be forced into externalism. And it's that's a good vehicle, but I think that par- I'm probably reacting this way also because it was placed inside of his head and you, you wrote the inside of his head very well and in a very, like, uh, rich way. Like, it, it made him feel like an, an actual person as opposed to, like, the stand-in vehicle so that we have a witness to the story. Um but yeah, I, I quite liked how you focused more on this, the the internalism of uh, both grappling and insight that is forced on someone unbidden by uh, whack circumstances. I think you could describe a nuclear war as whack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be that'd be the first thing I would post stuff. Nuclear war, just be that a picture of uh, that guy said whack. <laughs> <laughs> 
I live right by DC, so if it got hit by a nuke and I saw the mushroom cloud, it'd be like, shit's whack, man. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone dead. <laughs> Yo, I'm gonna log off. I gotta become a mutant now. <laughs> I'm quickly gone... developing claws. I can't type. <laughs> Have you ever got... There's a website where you can... Um... Become a mutant? Wait. No. Unfortunately Start not. a nuclear war. Uh, kind of. Um, oh, it's so like it's... war games. It, no, it's it's like it's like Google Maps. It's a Google it's a Google Maps mashup where you you put in your an address or a city, and then you can see um, yeah, you can see what what a nuclear bomb would in that city would do. Like it would have a a zone in the middle where everything gets obliterated. Then as it goes further out, it's like ninety percent people would die, eighty percent, seventy, some people get irradiated. Yeah, website for research. And, um, yeah, you did. Yeah, oh, okay. It to me. And okay. Um, I was really interested in things like you can you can alter the wind speed and stuff, and you can alter the direction, mm, and you yeah. can see like in what direction the fallout would go, and um over like period of days and weeks and yeah, stuff. I, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I played. I I went through a phase where I played with that for like just when I was whenever I was bored for about a week, I just put in like my old house, places I've lived, you know, would. Would it be okay? Uh, it turns out most of the places I've lived would not be okay. Um, no, I think the same goes I tend to Yeah, cities. London would, uh, no, last about 30 seconds. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's London anyway, so you, you'd probably just tear each other apart oh, yeah. anyway. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I used to It's very there, rich. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, and where I lived in... When I lived in Islington, that would be just pancaked. That would, um, yeah, which would probably be a lot of justice because it's Islington. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, are you working on anything new right now? I'm actually just finishing up the next book, um, which isn't a sequel. Um, it's um, it's a thing. Uh, without any spoilers, um, this does it does kind of leave a bit of space for a sequel. I think you you don't have to do one. Yeah, there is space there. Um, I know lots of people would like it, um, but I'm not sure how. uh, If I wrote anything else set in the same universe, it wouldn't necessarily be a sequel because I feel like the sequel would be watching everyone you you've come to love die of radiation poisoning. Um, If I wrote, that's a that's a sequel. But it's not one that I necessarily want to write. If I wrote another in the last universe, it would probably be um, from Nadia's perspective, John's wife. Ah, okay. yeah, that, that would work. Um, but yeah, I haven't yeah. really thought so much about that yet. Uh, the next book is also dystopian, and there's a there's a simple end in there. Okay, good. Um, cool. So, can can you tell us anything about it? Or is it like top it's secret. not particularly top secret. Um, I haven't written the ending yet, but it's pretty much done. Um, it's called The Blackouts. And it's um, mm-hmm. set during um, a series of sort of rolling nationwide blackouts in the UK. Um, and it's set in one sort of gated community in London. Um, and it's kind of about oh, the nice. fallout from that. Um, but it's also about the individual stories of two people living in that road. Um, Cool. I know there's been uh, rolling blackouts in California. Yeah, exactly. Like people keep Um, sending me, like since I've been writing this book, every time there's a blackout, everyone (coughs) sends me, sends me the new story. Yeah, I think my, yeah, every time my my lights go out, I'll I'll DM you (laughs) just so you know. 
Um, but uh, yeah, and I, I know there's been um, in New York, there was some rolling blackouts that were basically like racialized. They cut the power to the black neighborhoods so the white neighborhoods could still mm. get power. Well, that, that's partly um, so, like that's what fine. I'm writing about. Um, oh, yeah, they, they would do that in London oh, yeah, in a second. Uh, they would probably well, just I, do I've it seen for fun. it happen like in front of me um, because it was based on something that actually happened to me last year um, when we had a blackout that took out a, a lot of southwest London. It was the, all of Richmond and it was up to Putney. Um, and it was oh. for nine hours, um, which is kind of unheard of. You know, it's it's quite strange to have a blackout that goes for that long. So I was going out like stockpiling candles yeah. and stuff because I realized I didn't own any. And um, what was interesting is that even though it only lasted for nine hours, um, these huge lorry-sized generators appeared in my road. Um, and there were we had about six or seven of them all the way up the road, and they, they were powering everything. They were powering the residence gym. They were powering the, uh, all of the buildings, the pool, all of it. And, um, but when I walked elsewhere in the neighborhood, I noticed that it was just our road that had the generators, and the generators were there as, as as insurance kind of back up for three weeks and i thought well why did our road get generators and no no one else i didn't see any generators anywhere else and i think it was because they were paid for by the um homeowners association or something um but i thought over a long yeah. period of time that that is what would that is what would happen everywhere like the people who could afford it would just buy generator power and everyone else would be screwed mm. yeah definitely a few people would have solar panels on their on their roofs, and yeah, um, yeah, especially in somewhere as um, uh, in where there's so much inequality mm. as London, it would be very um, yeah, it, it would be very obvious who the haves and have-nots were. It would turn into um, a high rise, but horizontally, yeah, pretty much, pretty quickly. yeah. And and plus, there, there'll be no internet. So um, yeah, as soon as your f phone ran out, you'd be you'd have to stop posting, and that's an unbearable thing. That's uh, gone from dystopia. It's, it's just horror at that point, being unable to post. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm I'll look forward to that. It sounds sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty so, good. I think. Cool. So uh, do you know roughly when that will um, be? I I have no idea. It won't be for a, for a little while yet. At least a year, probably um yeah no idea cool yeah well the the last has just come out so you know you've you've, you've earned a break <laughs> yeah i don't get but, that um, yeah sure <laughs> and um I've, I've got to ask and you know this is that you can totally say t it's top secret mm -hmm. that's fine but has been any any um any talk of uh, option in this? Because it's it's very cinematic. It would work great as TV series. Yeah, it would. Um, I can't talk about it, basically. So, um, Okay. Yeah. Totally fine. That's cool. I won't discuss any of my casting ideas. We can discuss, like, casting, um, casting ideas. Um, I'm, just, I'm just not allowed to say, like, any, I'm just not allowed to say anything, basically. <laughs> um, do, you, do you have your own casting ideas? There are people who I would like. Um, I think Brie Larson would make a really good Tommy. Um, oh, damn right. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, and I'd like to see yeah. that too. Her being kind of, uh, yeah, not, not as nice as she, and, as she has been in many yeah. places. Um, yeah. Other people? I'm not so sure. Like, I haven't been able to cast John in my head or anything like that. 
yeah, he's a difficult one to cast, isn't he? I, I was thinking about that when I was writing, uh, reading the book. I didn't write it. Um, yeah, he, he, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Now, you, now you're on the point of the podcast where you're just yeah. telling bald <laughs> lies. <laughs> like, just lo- locking eyes at the author. I, I wrote this book. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be a terrified Twilight Zone-esque uh, uh, revelation at the end it, it turns out I wrote this book just the whole time and you turn it over it's got my name on the cover whoa okay I, that's my idea I'm going to write that now um, but but your picture is that of a talking horse <laughs> and you're like wait and then you look in the mirror and you're a talking horse whoa double twilight zoned <laughs> okay I can't I can't be dealing with this right now it's just it's just way too much this is yeah no can't i no no this is even worse than not being able to post um so yeah i i look forward to both the tv adaptation star brie larson uh, or film and the forthcoming blackout mm-hmm. novel yeah and um yeah uh, i'll i'll check it out and hopefully we'll have you back to talk about the blackout great yeah um cool so yeah thanks very much folks at home do go by the last. Um, if you're in the UK, Waterstones will help you out with that because they seem to be in love with this novel. Um, do uh, yeah, ch- check it out. It, it is. It looks kind of big. It's like 350 odd pages, but it it goes really quickly. You'll be through through one side and out the other so fast because it's written really clearly. Every and it yeah, and like Landon said, it's it really works on. A very high level if you let it. So, um, yeah, Hannah, thanks. And um, to cap off the episode, uh, it was kind of obvious what we had to play this week because uh, Blood Incantation, one of like the finest death metal bands on the planet right now, along with Two Mold and probably Gate Yeah, there's probably some others, but um, yeah, they've just dropped a single. Uh, from their new album, The Hidden History of the Human Race. It's the one with the meme cover. Um, and yeah, the song is... I haven't actually heard it yet. Um, it uh, it absolutely fucking slaps. I bet it does. Uh, I, had no, I had absolutely no doubt. It's um, one of the... Uh, so they did their classic thing for this new album, where um, three of the four tracks are normal song length. And then the last track is 20 minutes. Nice. The single is not the 20 minute long song. They're not they're not dumb enough to sell the whole album on uh, on one track. Uh, I have a promo of it. Uh, it's stupid baller. It's just, it's really, really stupid. Really. Just... Yeah. I, I really dig that they've jumped on the UFO bandwagon now. So yeah, everyone's everyone's on that bandwagon now. They're uh they're one hundred percent. They have two modes. There's riffing and there's shredding, and that's it. Sometimes they're doing both modes, but they're never not doing at least one. Yeah, and they 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 shred all the time. Uh, and they riff, and it's just yeah, just an incredible band. I and my only fear is they got so much into David Ike that they started to take him seriously, and now they've become like David Ike people. But, that would um, be hope, terrible. Yeah, that would be absolutely heartbreaking. You you not want to see that at all. You never want to go full like. 
yeah. you want to watch a couple of videos on YouTube, be like, this motherfucker is crazy. And then go on about your day. Yeah. And then you like Google David Icke anti-Semitism and find out, oh, loads of it, apparently. And the lizard people are just a metaphor for Jews. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, we're going to play Inner Paths to Outer Space. Cool, cool title. Uh, you at home are going to go out and buy The Last because it's damn good. Uh, you're and gonna... then you're going to buy Blood Incantation. Yeah, you better do. You better fucking do it. Do that, podcast listeners. Otherwise, we'll come around your house and we'll look at you while you sleep. I'll hook you. You, you got to hook him? I'm going to hook him. Meat hook. All right. Damn. Yeah. So that's what happens if you don't buy this Blood Incantation album. So play you. the Blood Incantation album on really good headphones while reading uh, The Last and prepare to send your mind to mega heaven. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a <laughs> even more awesome heaven that you can go to by combining <laughs> those two things. Okay. A tight book and killer death metal. Yeah. <laughs> what else do you need? So, yeah. Do those things. Uh, leave us a review. That's the that's the third part to get into Mega Heaven is going on to iTunes and leaving us a review. Um, pay, and you know, subscribe on Patreon. You know, all the all the usual podcasty stuff. But um, and come back real soon because we're going to be talking to Dawn Raid. We love we love our boys in Dawn Raid. And um, next week we'll be talking to uh, Natalie Ola about her book "Steal as Much as You Can." Um, which is a dissection of the culture industry in the UK through a lens of class. So we'll be talking about how I didn't like Fleabag and F all the girls will um, instantly unsubscribe from my terrible opinions on Fleabag. But uh, I, uh, I haven't seen Fleabag. Okay. I, I'm not a fan. But um, yeah, come back next week for me um, destroying myself through that, my terrible opinions. But here is Blood Incantation. <laughs>